Dr. Ignacio Medrano is founder and chief medical officer at Savannah, who use AI to unlock all of the value out of clinical records. They've raised over $44 million to date, and he has over 100 employees. This is a very different interview to normal. Ignacio is very interesting, outspoken, charismatic, and we talk about how he built Savannah, his views on AI and health, what's hype and what's BS, large language models and their threat to his company, and how he's trained himself to become a better storyteller to get to where he is today. I hope you enjoy. So Ignacio, would you mind telling me a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm a neurologist and I practiced for 10 years in one of the main hospitals in Madrid. But I was always super enthusiastic about data and uh, even way be, uh, before I knew about the, the word, the concept big data, never heard about it before. Uh, AI for me was something in the movies, but I thought that big numbers tell a lot of truth. That's something that I had like a, a, a background in my career and um, I was super interested in mathematics and statistics. So I decided to take the entrepreneurial way of doing things and I stopped my or I paused my career as a neurologist and I went to Silicon Valley to do a program, the Singularity University uh, program, where I learned how to start a, a company. Actually, I started two of them in, in AI, and that's how everything began. What kind of learnings did you take from the world of neurology and the world of medicine more broadly into your entrepreneurial journey? Like, What things did you, pick, did you take that someone who hadn't done what you'd done wouldn't know about? So what I've seen basically is that it, uh, experience tells us that when tech people try to jump into healthcare and create tools and devices and, and so on for doctors, normally they don't work, even when they're super you know, um, advanced technologically. And the reason is probably uh, that, that the, the contact uh, with the patient gives you some intangibles that are related to contrafactual thinking, emotional thinking, contextual thinking, um, and you learn to distinguish things that are important when you're jumping into artificial intelligence. I like to say that in machines, I rely, but in humans, I trust. A machine cannot deceive you, cannot disappoint you. And probably the reason is that it's not conscious. It's intelligent because it solves problems, but it's not conscious because consciousness is related to morality. That's why in medicine, we talk about the, um, the clinical judgment right? Ma machines cannot judge. They can take decisions. But uh, there is a huge gap between making decisions and judging. So those that, uh, let's say, ambiguity, that, that uh, binomial way of thinking, judgment and decision-making, reliability and trust, consciousness and intelligence, all those things I think are very difficult to understand with all my respect. For peer engineers, you need to be in front of patients to understand what that means when a you know, 75-year-old person comes into the practice, not necessarily literate and not understanding all the um, fancy concepts we talk about. And you have to choose the right words and touch the right way. So those things that are very emotional are the ones that help me in the way I approach AI every day. It's a very general question, but if you were building a product or a service within health, um, how might that kind of insight that you've just described impact what you do, the difference between how machines are kind of amoral and you can trust them and the way that humans are kind of more emotional and you make harsh judgment on them, that kind of thing you've talked about. I'm just curious about any like practical applications of it. Yeah, so when you look at many of the applications that have failed, they assume that the process of, of giving care uh, to patients is A plus B plus C equals D. It's like a process where 
where you get you know signs and symptoms and then comes an MRI and then this and this and then you get to a result which is also algorithmic and then you apply that result and then you get a treatment and you're cured. And that's a model of disease that is absolutely not true. Uh, that it's simplifying enormously how uh, health and disease work, uh, which is um, a very complex model, which also has to incorporate the social stand, uh, standing of the person and also the, uh, the economical uh, one and also uh, how literate the, uh, the, the person is, how you can communicate. Of course, the emotional part of it, it of course, is psychological part of it. And those play big roles. It, they're not just small fractions uh, compared to the other part. They're even bigger than the scientific part. So combining evidence generation with um, with all those, um, let's say, attributes of the person are absolutely needed in the way you create the, the tools. We've spoken about some of the benefits of being clinical and seeing patients and how that affects entrepreneurship in the space. Uh, but I'm curious about what, what, what do you think some of the downsides are, like either in yourself with your own clinical experience or what you've seen from other colleagues in the space. Do you think there's some downsides of having a lot of clinical experience in entering the health space? Yes, of course. Um, I think we doctors are biased towards uh, a few, let's say, mental models that don't help the creation of new tools of, of uh, a software company or, or even a technology company. Um, we're maybe too biased uh, towards perfectionism. So that's one of the main problems being a, a doctor, uh, this concept of improving a bit every day. This Kaizen way of doing things is something that we don't necessarily understand. It's either it's very good or it's terrible, which doesn't help at all uh, when you're dealing with a team of engineers that are trying to create something. They have this much more, this improvement uh, mentality mindset, which is which is needed. And it took me a lot of time to, to understand how things uh, work in that regard. And I, I would say that my, my transformation into the light side uh, is not yet uh, finished. So today I still um, struggle with, with being able to say, well, it, today is a bit better than yesterday. That's enough for today. Tomorrow, let's have a, a, new, um, a new approach to it. I still take it too personal, too emotional when the, the tools are not good enough. And um, I think that doesn't help. And um, also maybe... Uh, you know, we as doctors are very good at what we do, but we don't have a lot of cultural, um, let's say, understanding of how other things work. Finan the financial world, the economic world, world, everything that surrounds companies and how they work in human resources. I had to catch up very quickly. And sometimes I see that I don't have the background. I noticed that I missed that. I didn't do any MBA either. I just learned from practice. So yeah, sometimes I miss these things and I have to rely a lot on, on my partners, which is good. But sometimes I wish I, I had more understanding of the world outside the door of the hospital. Yeah, I want to pick up on that last point because I think the two frameworks are given are uh, just-in-case learning and just-in-time learning. So just-in-case learning is like you going to university for four years just in case one day you want to start a business. You know, it's like it's just-in-case. And then just-in-time learning sounds like what you've done with your uh, entrepreneurial journey where you've just kind of gone into the world and every time you need to learn something you learn it on the spot you didn't formally do an MBA um, so the question is is was, was that a good approach is that has that worked well for you or, or not really um, 
so answering your question, if you look at the way we do things, uh, there is some some kind of trend that you see within our company. Uh, it's a hundred people company. There are doctors and engineers and linguists because we do a lot of natural language processing with medical records and some other things. And there there is something that engineers uh, find all, uh, usually find funny, which is that when when they give us a task to ask doctors, we normally respond to the task immediately on that same day, sometimes in on that same hour, instead of scheduling it, programming it, and then prioritizing it, and then giving a result depending on, you know, I think that uh, relates to the way in which we work at the hospital. When we get trained as doctors, we normally um, try to have everything solved in case some, an emergency happens. So everything, the list of patients need to be, needs to be clean as soon as possible because then something could happen. And um, if, if that's the case, I w don't want to have a lot of people waiting. Uh, but that's super counterproductive uh, for, you know, being uh, generators of, of pieces of software or, or methodologies that need to, to, you know, to have a program or schedule. And um, so, yeah, uh, that works for me, but uh, it's always something that needs improvement. I want to pick up on a point you made earlier where you said that maybe some of the downsides of being a clinician and entering the entrepreneurial world is this perfectionism and this Kaizen principle. But it was my impression, and look, I've only been a doctor for two years, but the doctors are very good with dealing with the imperfect, the incomplete, with uh, whether that's incomplete information about patients, uh, whether that's like uh, not very many resources and just making the best decision they can. So it's my impression that doctors actually excel at that. So the question I wanted to ask you was, what are your thoughts on that? And secondly, can you maybe give some examples of how you've had to iron out some of your perfectionism when you become more entrepreneurial? Yeah, so uh, it, it's a bit weird because as you said, we are good at dealing with uncertainty. We are good at, at dealing with making the best possible decision with just a bit of information. And we as neurologists are especially good at that. But what I've noticed is that, amazingly, I would say, at the same time, uh, when we confront technology, we judge it very thoroughly. I mean, very hard in a way that if what they offer us as, as doctors, as clinicians, is not exactly what we have in our mind, we tend to reject it instead of understanding it, that it's a continuous process. So it's like we are good at, at being flexible with the biological world with which we have to deal every day. But then when we come to the human-created world, the tech world, then we get much more strict. And um, I don't know what's the anthropological reason why that happens, but that's what I notice um, compared to, to, other, to other specialties. So maybe that explains uh, a bit what I was trying to, the idea I was, I was trying to, to convey. And the, the mantra of Silicon Valley is, is move fast and break things. The problem is that here you cannot do that. And uh, it, it has a big impact on innovation because basically innovation, you know, this innovator dilemma, it's all about understanding that you're going to be wrong three or four times until you start ha something, having something useful. The problem is that uh, in healthcare, you, if, normally you don't find that patience. So, you know, the manager of the hospitals, the clinicians, even the pharmaceutical companies, they get super nervous when things are not ideal the first day. So they all say, they claim that they want to do innovation, but it's not really true. And it's not because they're lying. It's because they don't understand that innovation is about failing. And um, so I noticed that and I suffered that and I learned from that. 
I learned to um, tell the right messages the first day, uh, to not to raise the expectations too much. That was probably my biggest mistake. I raised the expectations too much, not because I was lying, but because I thought that things were going to be faster. But then you confront reality. So you learn how, in a way, you learn how to bring these other stakeholders to their reality, that it's going to be a journey where we're going to learn together and that it's okay, that that's, that's the way it should be. And um, what I also learned is that if you do it right the first day, then things are, are better, are smooth, and, and they feel part of, of the team that is trying to innovate and they're happy with it. But you shouldn't, probably shouldn't do the opposite. I want to ask you a question I sometimes get in trouble for asking people, but it's that do you ever need to be a bit of a dick to be a good leader? Are there times where you found that um, you have to be a bit nasty, a bit horrible? Like, are there ever times you've needed to do that? Oh, so I learned that the right leaders, the good leaders, are normally the you know red type of people, as in this division of red, yellow, green, and, and blue. The red ones are the uh, you know the the let's say the the strong ones, the ones that uh, don't give a a lot of time to conversations, but just make decisions and and look at the uh, pragmatic side of things. And um, I, I tend not to be red. I tend to be yellow, like the person that wants a better world. Not necessarily by looking at people, but looking at ideas and technologies and so on. It's more like the vision side of things. But, uh, you know, that's, that's the words. But then you need the numbers. And the numbers fall much more on the red side of things. So I learned that leaders need to have at least a strong part related to that. Um, but at the same time, leaders need to be people that the rest wants, want to follow by themselves. Um, so I would say that it's a, that it's a combination. I, I don't think that leaders have to be, you know, this, you know, disgusting people or something like, I, I would say that, that it's probably about ma making hard decisions, but at the same time, the way in which in which you communicate to your teams can be a nice way and um it's a balance and i th i would say it takes a lot of experience you don't get that the first 5 years but it's something that i've seen in some bright minds around me there's this concept of dunbar's number which says that um the human brain can only manage something like 140 connections uh, at one time and um, I, I, look, I don't know how true it is, but it's a nice number. And with Savannah, you're now reaching over 100 employees. And my question was, how, what have you learned about leadership as you've scaled? What's been different to say the first, the early days when there's maybe five or 10 of you in a garage to now where there's over 100 people? Like, what have you had to change about yourself? Yeah, I learned a few things. Some, some of them you, you will find in the typical Silicon Valley entrepreneurial books, which are useful sometimes. Uh, other times, it, it's better not reading and just doing the the work and and, and learning by yourself. That's also something that I learned. Um, and by the way, they don't always apply to Europe. So that being said, I think that there are two things here to consider. One is that the uh, normally the uh, hunters that you need for the first phase of your startup are not of your endeavor are not necessarily the ones that you will need in the second stage. The ones are the the first ones are going to be much more generalistic, and are going to be doers. But then the, uh, on the second phase, you're uh, you know one to hundred, hundred to infinite. 
you're going to need um, people that are more, um, let's say, um, focused on, on one specific task and at the same time are more thinkers, more that have more strategic thinking, that, that not jump necessarily the first day on, on solving the task, but have the ability to reflect and to create a plan. Um, so I learned that that transition is difficult. You know, you know things go very well at the beginning with, with the first ones, but then the first ones start struggling when they, they have to not do and solve, but sit down and plan for the others to do and recruit the right people to do it. Um, so that's, um, that mindset uh, needs to be changed, I would say, as soon as possible, uh, not to do it the hard way. Mm, yeah, so that's something the, uh, to, to consider. The other thing is that after, and this is probably, it was my Christmas message to the company. Uh, I tried to be in communication with them. And it's also something that I tell everyone when they join the company. I like to have a one-on-one interview of just a few minutes to welcome them personally. And this is what I tell them. Avoid politics. So politics becomes something. And I mean, they appear sooner, way sooner than you would think. You would think that in a 150 people um, company, because at some at some point we were 160, but then we automated many processes and we could go back to uh, the, the magic number of 100. So when we were one, 160, we discovered how incredibly fast politics grow in an organization, which is quite small, right? Managers start hiding what is happening in the company because it's better not to be the ones that bring the bad news. And um, that makes a lot of harm. So, yeah, that's one of my main lessons, probably. How to be very cautious with letting your people know that politics are uh, the perfect way to, to disaster. You said that the lessons learned from the kind of Silicon Valley um, gospels or the, or the entrepreneurship books don't always work in Europe. Can you expand on that? Is there anything that you think doesn't really work from those books in in your experience? Yeah, so I haven't uh, written a, a book, but if I ever do uh, about my, my entrepreneurial adventure, it's very likely that the title... It will be something close to innovating despite Europe or maybe innovating despite Spain. Uh, maybe the UK is a bit different, is a bit of an exception. We have probably our best experience in Europe, but we have it with the UK. But then when you go to the rest, to South Europe, Southern Europe and Central Europe, things are very difficult for entrepreneurs because um, the decision-making is not based on rules. It's based on psychology. Uh, you know what drives the decision is not is not this is A B C and you fulfill it and then you're good to go. It's much more about a committee deciding whether they like you or not, whether they trust you or not, whether this is culturally acceptable or not. So difficult to explain to the Americans when uh, our American investors and so on when when we have the opportunity. Decision making is different. It's not that clear what you need to do to get an approval. For example, when we you're trying to get the permission to read the medical records of a hospital, I mean, I'm, I'm saying read, I'm not saying owning them, just reading them. In an anonymized way, in a PE-identified way, which is fully legal, it's GDPR compliant. Um, you know, in the US, it's, 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 it's straightforward. You, you know what you have to do. You identify this way, you pay this amount of people to the IT uh, staff that need to do this uh, work for you, and you're good to go. 
But here in Europe, um, in some countries, it's it's very different. You fulfill all the criteria, and then you get a no. And what's the reason? Well, the committee considers that this is not interesting academically. But what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything. But the fact that as Europeans, we're 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 not uh, driven to innovation the same way that uh, they are on the other side of the ocean. So yeah, um, something to to consider definitely when you launch a startup. Nasia, let me put forward a hypothesis I have, which is probably over the next five or 10 years, and then please feel free to challenge me or maybe even agree with me or just just give me your thoughts. So you mentioned predictive AI in, in healthcare, and it's my belief, I guess, or loosely held belief that in the next five or 10 years, I don't think it's going to be a super interesting thing, maybe after a decade, but I don't think in the immediate future, it's very interesting. And the reason I have this belief is, um, I mean, you mentioned that you used to work in Alzheimer's. You know, there's there's a couple of companies that kind of predict or are trying to predict when Alzheimer's will happen before it happens. And then the next question is always, well, what are you going to do about it? Like, what what's what's the point? Was you know, in any in um, Parkinson's, Huntington's, I don't know, Alzheimer's. Like, maybe if there was an AI that could um, predict it was going to happen two, three decades before it actually does, what's the point of knowing? So that's always been my gripe with predictive AI in healthcare. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Agree, disagree? Half agree and half disagree. I'll tell you why. <laughs> um, I think you're very right. And that's uh, the type of, of mindset that you have when you're a doctor. Understanding that diagnosis is not actionable, then in the majority of cases, it's not really worth it. Even It can be even counterproductive. Uh, it's difficult for people outside healthcare to understand that. But it's the Cochrane, I think it's the Cochrane something, phenomena or something like that, 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 that said this, right? That in medicine, uh, even when it's very counterintuitive, sometimes knowing more can be less. And that's the reason why I never took a genomic uh, test myself. I, I, I didn't do it. Actually, when we were at Singularity University, uh, we were like 80 people in the classroom. And everyone was super techie and, you know, incredible people. But then uh, 23andMe and, and this kind of, of, of um, services were super trendy at, at that moment. And everybody was taking the test, except three people. The three people were exactly the physicians in the room. And I mean, that tells you a lot uh, because we understand. We understand this actionable, non-actionable duality, which has to be um, taken into account. So I agree with you with, uh, in that regard. Now, there is another type of predictive modeling in healthcare today, which is not a future, you can do it today, which is um, treatment selection. So what about if I create a predictive model that tells you that in this particular patient, it is going to, it, it is going to be better to prescribe epilimumab than the standard of care. And in this other population, it's not. Then, I mean, things change if you have that type of cancer and things change if you are the uh, pharmacy, the, the manager of the uh, pharmacy, uh, which is going to expend the money only in the patients where it's worth it. So that's where I see this happening sooner. So if we do a SWOT analysis of Savannah, uh, so strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, what would you be putting under the strength column? Um, so the way I see it, we already did something remarkable. Uh, so if I die tomorrow, I'm okay because I already brought something to the world that didn't exist, which is the concept that you can do clinical 
evidence generation, you can create research studies by automatically extracting the information from the medical records of the hospitals at international level. This didn't exist. The, this concept didn't exist. There was the concept of applying NLP to medical records, but there wasn't the concept of having an evaluation methodology by which you can check that the variables are good enough, fit for purpose, for research studies in multiple myeloma at international level and multilingual level. So we created that. And by doing that, we created, of course, an ecosystem of companies that replicate our model. So today you will find six, seven, eight companies doing the same in different points of the world. Obviously less advanced because we started before, but they are them, they're good followers. Um, so that as a mission is great. And I, that's something I can tell my son. Now, there is a second, a second stage, a second moment, which is I didn't create the concept, but I took it to every point in the world. I took it to every hospital, to every site, to every sponsor, which in other words is to say, it's not that I created a new way of doing things, it's that I made the old one disappear. That's my next mission, to, to do things so that no one looks in the uh, looks at data manually anymore. No one populates an Excel sheet with variables of patients anymore because it's given by granted the machines do it. That's where we are now. And um, in growing is where the incredible business opportunity lies because obviously the bigger the network is, the bigger the studies are, the bigger pharmaceutical companies that are going to get involved in this. And, you know, the opportunity is, is massive because at the same time, while we grow this by itself, outside Samana, we are world evidence as a concept. So observational studies as a concept are growing massively. So we're coupling the growth of a company that invented, invented something very innovative with the growth of the market where we are, which is the you know, the real-world evidence uh, part of things, as, aside from clinical trials. In the SWOT analysis, in terms of threats, um, I'd be really curious to hear what you think about the new large language models and whether they're something that are kind of specific enough or geared enough to pose a threat to the kind of stuff you're doing. Yeah, so that's the, precisely, in my opinion, in our opinion, that's precisely not our biggest threat. It's actually a, an advantage because these large language models uh, uh, what they are, and they you can chat about it with them and ask, ask them, what are you? They're going to tell, you, to tell you, I'm a generalistic language model. I'm not an expert in any field, and I don't intend to be that. I to, intend to be the API to which you plug your expert database, and then you use my incredible linguistic engine. So, so it's not a threat. It's something that is helping us. Actually, we have been using the, the same technology that lies behind ChatGPT um, at Savannah for, for years already, for months, the, the last ones for months, and then the, other, the others for years. I mean, the transformers and birds and all these types of, of linguistic AI. Um, so that's, that's definitely good news for us, not bad news. I, I would say two of, we have two threats. One, I, I talked about uh, the growth of the real-world evidence market, but the question... Now talking very, you know, with a, with a business plan in mind is how fast is it going to grow? Is it going to grow in five years or in two years or in 10 years? There is some uncertainty about the 
pace at which drugs agencies, the FDA and the ENA, are going to start accepting real world evidence seriously. Not as the small brother of the uh, clinical trials, but, uh, but seriously. No one knows. These agencies are super bureaucratic, super, you know. So that's, the, that's a risk. And the other one is related to what you mentioned. So we, speci uh, we create this incredible data databases, not just because we want to save human effort, but for something bigger. We do it because with bigger databases, you can create better predictive models because you have more variables. That's the real reason why we do things. It's not to save data managers. And um, so the problem is that for me, it's not clear. It, the, the market of buying predictive models hasn't been created. You can really sell many predictive models to stakeholders today. Hospitals don't, it, 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 you know, this, this, when they say it's no one's job, it's no one's job to buy predictive models. In hospitals, in healthcare systems, they're starting now, you know, in a shy way in the US, in the UK, in China, in Japan. So for now, we have to apply our technology to more descriptive studies and outcomes generation studies which is good because we automate it. But we would love to live in a world where people buy predictive models every day. Not only because it would be a, a, a better world, but it's also because there will be a market created for us. I hope you don't mind me saying, but you're a little bit eccentric. Uh, you're obviously a, like a showman. You're a really good storyteller and speaker. Is that something that you've always had? Is it something you developed? And has it been, I'm, I'm guessing it's been pretty helpful in, in what you've done, being able to tell a good story? And be a little bit eccentric. It's a mix. It's a mix. For me, there is something natural. Um, so what they tell me is that since I was a child, I liked uh, public speaking. I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed, uh, you know, uh, giving ideas and so on. So there's something in me that, that that has always been like that. But at the same time, I put an incredible amount of effort. People would be surprised in learning. I saw every talk. Of you know Obama, uh, everyone that is that is a good speaker on on YouTube. I read every book about public speaking. I remember after being on call for twenty four hours, super tired. Instead of going home, I went to to class to a school of um, neuro linguistic programming. You know how to convince people with your eyes, with your voice tone. I've done this for years, and there's a lot of training behind it. Uh, so it, it, it's never easy. It's a combination. Is neuro-linguistic programming, is it legit? Like, does it, does it work? I, I'm, I'm not sure about the translation. It's uh, this school of thought that basically analyze when people are super convincing what they have in common and they discover that uh, it relates to the way in which you move your eyes and how you move your body, you know, the body language things, a bit of hypnosis maybe, it's a combination of different uh, approaches to communication. So I'm really interested in becoming better as a storyteller and just communicator in general. From your kind of study of this, from the courses you've done, from the reading you've done, from your experience, um, are there any kind of high-level takeaways, any points that, that really changed you or made you a lot better at what you did? Yeah, so probably the first lesson would be don't go to a public speaking course. Because public speaking courses don't teach you how to public speak. 
if you want to, to learn public speaking, go to theater classes. Because public speaking is about playing a character, which is not yourself. And which, once you're on stage, uh, lets you connect with the idea. When you connect with the idea, you forget about yourself. And when you forget about yourself, you start in something natural. And everything is smooth. And, and you are happy to be on stage and nerves disappear. Because you're not thinking about the ego, about yours, your person. You're thinking just about the idea you're trying to convey. And being able to merge with the idea is something that actors master. So I think taking impro classes, um, theater classes would be the way. And when you say that you uh, forget about yourself or lose your ego a bit, um, does that mean that you're playing a character in which is not really you, so it's not your ego? Or does that mean that basically you um, are just being like, the raw version of yourself. I'm sorry if that question's a bit confusing, but like, how do you think about it? Like, are you um, at the moment? Do you play a character or do you be yourself? I, I don't mind saying it. I, I hundred percent play a character. When I'm stage, something that happened to me many times. People want to meet me after after being on stage, and then they come to me and they ask me a couple of questions, and they're super disappointed because they're like, "Well, this guy." has nothing special. He's super normal. His answers are not really special. His way of, he's not really very tall. You know, the way, I mean, he, uh, and, and they're very surprised. And they say that that's what happens when you meet sometimes actors or actresses that outside the, this, the, you know, that their work is like, it's not that impacting anymore. And um, I feel that's what happens to me. I grow when I'm on stage, I become another person. I'm a character, which is this doctor that tells about these things in this way. If you look at the, for example, the emails that I send every week, I say a lot of bad sounding words. I'm a kind of arrogant person. I'm not that person. I, I, I would never do that in my real life. It's just a character that I created, that I invented. I wanted to ask you about this story of you turning down an invitation to the Royal Academy of Science. Um, can you talk about that and maybe why you made that decision and kind of what, what that reflects about kind of your view on the world. Okay. So that's part of the stories that my arrogant um, character that I created writes on the uh, weekly newsletter. That's not me. I would never do that. That's too arrogant. Uh, I don't mean I would never do that. I, I mean, I would never say it in public, but I did it. That's something that I did. And the reason is that um, I went there once. And uh, it was an incredible palace uh, in the surroundings of London. And I had a good morning and I learned a few things. And um, that was interesting, of course, many bright people there. But I thought, you know, these people, with all my respect for their incredible cities, which are way beyond what I, would n I will never get in my life. I was literally the dumbest person in the room. In the room. Um, but these guys are not really changing the world. They can be. They can spend a morning here talking because they don't have to pay 100 salaries, and because they don't have a list of 200 hospitals complaining about the technology that we're deploying. And even deeper than that, they don't plan to write papers with predictive algorithms that are going to be implemented 
in real patients in the next five years. So I cannot spend one more morning here. I have too much to do. And and when I'm older and, and, and when my son gets older, I want to tell, I don't want to tell him I have an incredible uh, curriculum in science because I'm the author of countless publications. I want to tell him I saved lives. And you don't save lives going to seminars, talking about theory. So, yeah, I declined. I, I don't want to be disrespectful, or, but there's the, the, there is a, a mission that, that goes beyond that. The other thing I wanted to ask was, you said earlier that when you're on stage and when you're pitching, etc., you're playing a character, and that character is... Um, probably a bit more arrogant or a bit more of a showman than you actually are yourself. I've been really curious about this when you look at world leaders and populist leaders in particular, like the Boris Johnsons, uh, the Donald Trumps, etc. of the world, and just looking at how they use um, kind of their, I want to say charisma or their kind of arrogance, and, and that kind of becomes magnetic and people really love it, and it becomes a bit of a competitive advantage. And I wanted to ask you, is that kind of a similar line of thinking that you that you have, or is, is has that been a bit of a competitive advantage, being a bit more of a magnetic person and having opinions on things and being a bit outspoken? Is, is that kind of the line you go with? 100%. These guys are genius. And they understand something that is... It, 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 should, be, it should be one of the first things that they, they tell us when we're children. And they didn't tell me. I had to learn it the hard way. The, probably the biggest mistake is to try to say things that no one dislikes. That's the perfect way towards a boring life, towards a mediocre career, towards a great project. By definition, the only way to do things that are interesting, impactful, charismatic, is to dislike many others. To, be, to always go 50-50 in life. The only way to have 200 hospitals that trust Havana is to have other 200 that hate us, that think that we're uh, stealing their data. By definition, the only way to, 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 you know, to have a, a, a tribe like I have, I like to call it, call it a tribe of doctors that believe in AI, is to have another tribe that if they could, they would make us disappear because they think AI is, is, is crazy, is harmful, is naive, is whatever. It, it took me some time to understand this. And um, it's probably the best tip I could give to convey messages that are original without fear to be judged because you're not interested in the, in the big group that is like them. You're interested in the small group that follows you. Seth Godin has a really good book called Tribes. I don't know if you've seen it. Yes, yes. I, I, I love Seth Godin. He's one of my... It's, it's probably my most influent person in my life. And I think in that book, he makes a point of when you're wanting to create your own tribe or you wanted to lead your own tribe or your own movement, what's more important than what you say you are is what you say you aren't. So you've got to, instead of just talking about the inclusion criteria of the tribe, you need to talk about the exclusion, like what you stand against. Uh, I think that was a really interesting point. That's very interesting. Uh, uh, there, there's also something similar that I read from Nicolas Taleb, which we all love, who is, by, by the way, the kind of person that not everybody likes, that, and he doesn't try to be so. Um, but he's, a, he's also a genius, and he says something like, um, 
the best way to spot a bullshitter is because you'll see that they tell you that you know the 10 rules to do this the five ways of true people normally tell you the don'ts so if you want to be a fit mother or if you want to go to El Cairo by yourself the the true ones are going to tell you the five things you shouldn't do because that's a subtle uh, texture of empirism as he says while the Five do's are much more like the, um, let's say, general messages that everyone could say, not from experience, but from having read it somewhere or whatever. I really like that thought. Um, I wanted to ask you, I've got this new segment I've been trying called Billion Dollar Health Ideas, and it's essentially asking you if tomorrow you were to start a new business uh, within health and life sciences, and you wanted to make it a billion dollar company, what would you what would you go and start? There are a few ideas there. Um but you're talking about money. You're talking about a you know, yeah. wealthy, successful company. Maybe it's too late. Maybe there are already some players there compared to when I had the idea a couple of years ago. Uh but I always thought that a an media agency using AI to spot fake news in healthcare is going to be incredibly useful and it's going to be worth millions because we're going there directly to a world where you don't know what is true, what is not true and it's like a battle of AIs. So start having your own army of anti-bad AI in healthcare is, is probably very promising. That's a super cool idea. Um... The last thing I wanted to ask you, and I think we've spoken about this quite a bit throughout, but have there been any habits or ways you approach problems or things you do that you think have helped you get to where you are today in your career? Yeah, I never watched television. Uh, that's not for, I mean, for the younger people, that's obvious, but uh, it, it's super simple, but it's the truth. When many people ask, uh, uh, why did you succeed? I always think in reality, I think that the real reason why I succeed succeeded this because I never watched TV. I never lost one second of my life watching TV. Not even when I was a teenager, never. I didn't watch a show. I, I don't know anything about the, the popular TV shows, nothing. You know, this is an anecdote. My my wife, she is the um, main character of the um, most popular show of uh, Spanish television ever. Uh, she's a very famous actress. And um, I never watched one episode and uh it's uh, you know it connects me with the idea that all the time that i spent doing other things you know paid off ultimately and then inside of that i meditate meditating is good i think it's it should be mandatory 20 minutes every day i i like to be very divergent i like to throw the ideas uh don't don't keep them you can always canalize them but you know channel them but people tend to think that divergence is uh is a problem um it's lack of focus but i i from my workshops in creativity and so on i learned that the worst thing you can do with an idea is to judge it before expressing it so first you express it you throw it out there you put it in the blackboard then you judge it but people usually do it the other way around 
So probably what took me here is that I never kept a crazy idea in sight. Because from the simplification of those crazy ideas came the good ideas. It's like in the fashion world. You see them with their incredibly fancy dresses. They're obviously not going to the street, but it's the simplification of those which are going to be out there for the uh, pre-caporter. So I think with, with ideas, innovative ideas, it's the same. You throw them, you judge them, you simplify them, and they're, you, you, you bring them out um, to the world. On the first point in terms of not watching TV, was that that there was some virtue in being bored? And that leads to some kind of product productive behavior. That's been my impression of it. That you, if, if being bored is actually quite a good thing to have in life. Yeah, uh, I'm surprised to see that there's now a lot of uh, cognitive research around this. Right, that the, when we are bored is when we have the best ideas, uh, even when the Greek already said so. Um, and also when you get uh, you analyze your personal story, and and you, in a way, you um, do like a self assessment and. So many cool things happen when you're bored. That would be one reason. The other reason is that I, I was reflecting about this recently. So, but I, I never, I never got asked this question. So it's quite new for me. Um, I think the real reason is not even that I spend more time reading or working. No, I'll tell you the real reason why not watching TV helps me a lot is because it made me think in an original way. So what, what characterizes watching television is that you think like everybody else thinks because you're getting your information from the same source. But by not watching TV, I wasn't exposed to culture. So I had my original way of say, seeing life intact. I don't mean in, in everything, but in many occasions. So that's probably the reason. Do you think there's a merit in doing things like watching tv watching football like arguably time-wasting activities but that it gives you some kind of um social credit that you can then connect with with other people and be more you know in quotes kind of normal do you do, do, you, do you know what i mean do you think there's like kind of the flip side of that not doing not watching tv as well no i i don't think so that's that's the kind of people that we don't appreciate the normal ones the, the ones that if no you're never going to talk about this you're not going to say, this guy, wow, he's so normal. I, lo I love him. You, you talk about the weird one. You talk about the strange one, about the ones that knows about things that no, nobody else knows. The one that did this incredible trip, the one that has this rare hobby. No, no, no. I, I think connection is about being unique, not about talking about, about what everybody talks about. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review. By the way, all of these episodes are now available on Spotify and on YouTube in video format. Thanks for listening.